Amen. All right, so if people know anything about Jesus, it's that he is or was a consummate storyteller. A consummate storyteller. We're going to look at this parable from Matthew 22 tonight. And I just am, I always am amazed whenever I interact with the parables simply because I have studied all of Jesus' parables. I have preached through all of Jesus' parables multiple times. I, I'm so familiar with every parable that Jesus taught. And I have never one time studied a parable and not been completely blown away yet again by all of the things that I see afresh and anew and even for the very first time. It is remarkable to me how Jesus' words are so clearly supernatural compared to all other words. When you read stories, it's, it's so simple. For the, if this was just a short story written by man, it, in 30 minutes I would know every single detail of it and I, would, I could commit it to memory in an hour, hour and a half and never miss a detail that's in it. Yet, it's not that way with parables. It's not that way with the Scripture. It's constantly revealing new nuances, little things, a word here, a word there. It's just it's truly remarkable. Now, Jesus' parables have the remarkable ability to engage our imaginations and they challenge our assumptions. And so Jesus is always speaking to a specific people who have a specific worldview and understanding and the context matters. And yet, at the same time, his words translate somehow thousands of years later into our modern culture and lives just as if he were saying it straight to us. Truly remarkable. Jesus did not teach in parables to provide a blanket affirmation for the way we understand God or ourselves or other people. He taught in parables to invite us to re-examine some of our most cherished convictions about matters of eternal importance. That's what the, the parables do every time we look at them. They flip something upside down every time. Cause us to re-examine some of our most cherished convictions about matters of eternal importance. So therefore, his parables will often unsettle rather than reassure. Mostly what the parables do is unsettle. They rattle assumptions. They rattle our expectations. And when we find that they reassure us, that is a great encouragement because it is a, it is a reflection of the fact that we're rightly interacting with God. So let's listen to the storyteller tell his story. Now understand, Jesus had just told two parables, he's, and he's, he's talking with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He just told two parables. They're, they've, at the end of chapter 21, they're furious with him because of the way in which he's teaching and the things that he's saying about Jesus, about himself. Okay, 
And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves and, my, and have, have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops to destroy those murderers and burn their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite, the wedding, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all who they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In, the, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now let's reset our thinking a little bit around this truth. Jesus compares the kingdom of God with a king who gives a wedding feast for his son. The first thing you just have to reckon yourself to is that think about what Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like it's not like a classroom it's not like boot camp it's not like some obedience test it's not like so many things that we might think it would be like it's like a party it's like a celebration. I love weddings. I have a wedding this Saturday. I have a wedding uh, a week and a half after that. I, I have probably 10 weddings between now and October. Weddings are amazing. Celebrations. How could you not like a wedding? Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a wedding. It's like a feast. It's like a celebration. It's like a party. And this is no everyday average wedding. It's a royal feast. It's a specific sort of celebration. Now, it's interesting whenever we read a parable, we're always trying to find ourselves in the parable. So basically, the characters in the parable are the king, the servants, the invitees, and then within the invitees, there's two groups, those who reject and those who accept. Did I miss anybody? And the son for whom the celebration is based on. That's, the, that's all the characters in the story. So clearly God the Father's the king, 
And his greatest goal is to bring honor to his son. So you should circle that whole statement right there because that is the foundational truth that you have to understand to get anywhere in this parable. You have to know who the king is and you have to know what exactly is the king's motivation. See, if you think the king's motivation is to get people to the celebration, you're wrong. If you think his, his, his priority is to do anything other than honor the son, you're, you're off. Because that's not what it is. You have to see what the priority is. So the difference between this feast or this wedding and what we might think about is, well, this one's not given to honor the bride or the marriage, but the son. It is very clear in the words the purpose for which we're celebrating because over and over he says it's to honor his son. It's to celebrate his son. So then we see this historical context because Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders. So the king first makes the general call to those who were already invited. Now, who has represented themselves as God's chosen people? The Jews have. And so they've been running around telling everybody since Abraham that they're God's chosen people. Now, that's important when we get to the very last statement in the parable. And so Jesus is talking to them. And so first thing off the bat, who are the first people that are invited? Well, he's referring to Israel. Now, in the context that Jesus is talking about, it's not a prominent man who's hosting a, who's a celebration for his son, this wedding feast. It's not the mayor or the governor but it is the king. It's very specific that it's the king. And so the audience would immediately understand and discern if the king is having a banquet and the king invites you to the banquet, certain things would come along with that. They fully understood that a royal invitation is a royal command. See, no king in first century time asked anything. Kings only commanded. They didn't ask. Only commanded. And so that's the mindset that you have to view this through and understand what's going on so that it begins to fall together. Consider that the king has the right and even the expectation to pour out his wrath on those who disobeyed a command utterly and swiftly that would be the expectation of any person interacting with any king at this time in this culture in this society so then the first shocker comes in because up until this point nothing's been a shocker a king is having a celebration for his son. A king sends his servants out. That would be normal to send your servants out to invite people. People said no. 
That wouldn't be typical. That would be a little outside the box. But the next sentence would be, and the king killed them all. And everyone would go, of course he did. Let's, the story makes perfect sense. But then the first bomb drops in this story. Instead of utter and swift wrath, he doesn't. He doesn't do that. Now everyone is totally puzzled. Wait, what? He doesn't just kill them all or end it or go ballistic or no. But by grace, not obligation, in love, he sends another invitation to the same people. Now, this is where it gets very fascinating because he sends another invitation to them, and it's in this sort of context of this invitation that all these beautiful nuances start to come out about the character and nature of God. See, in verse 4, the Bible says, again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have already prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and they went their ways, one to his farm, another to his business, and they seized the servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. Here's what I think. I think that you could sum up the character of God in one word from this parable. One word. What word do you think that is? Again. Again? Wait, what? Again? He sent out other servants? Who would do this? What king would do this? In what scenario would a king who has been rejected and shamed whose authority has been challenged, who's been publicly mocked, who's been embarrassed, would again? It's almost like that you can see the gospel in that word again, again. Now, here's what's interesting. The second invitation tells us about the first rejection, doesn't it? See, if you're doing something, and I don't know what you're doing, and I'm just observing what you're doing, if you do something, and that something doesn't work, then by watching what you then do next tells me what you think is wrong first, right? Did that make sense, or did I lose you? It's... So, so notice 
the second invitation, which then clarifies the first rejection. He didn't just repeat step one, did he? He changed it. He adjusted it. He nuanced it. The second time, he gives them specific information. Notice what he tells them. He didn't just say, hey, come on, we're having a feast. He says, everything's ready. The food is ready. It's all been prepared. It's going to be amazing. Look at what's going to be on the menu. Look at how wonderful this is. Now, what does that tell us about the first rejection? See, the response of those invited is important because it shows the inherent problem with any church movement that believes that people refuse Jesus primarily because of methods. What do most Christians do today? Maybe you share your faith with somebody and then they reject it. And so you think the problem is that you didn't share it compellingly enough or that you didn't, you didn't do it right or it wasn't the way it, you didn't, it wasn't the right time or it wasn't this or it wasn't that or what would make a difference is if you could get all the right words or make it all seem the right way. Yet I think this verse would say otherwise. I think the second invitation teaches us not only about the problem in the first rejection, but it also teaches us something about pragmatism. And that we have to be careful about trying to... to you see, what, what the modern evangelical thinks is that what we want to do is we want to lower the wall. We want to lower the barrier. We want to make it as easy as possible for somebody to come from where they are to where they need to be. Is that what the Bible teaches? I think what I'm saying. Because now you can nod your heads, but I don't believe you believe this. There's a whole bunch of you in here that don't believe this. Does the Bible teach that? Or does the Bible actually teach, leave the wall there? Leave it there. Huh, parents? You got young kids? What are you trying to do? Lower the, lower the wall all the time? How's it working for you? What does the Bible teach? Don't lower the wall. Those who are truly seeking will get over the wall. They're going to get over any wall. So look, the, the, the fact that we now have this new information about what's, that all the food's ready and what's on the menu, what does it tell us about the first rejection? Did they reject it because of the timing? Does the second invitation say, hey, no, 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 look, we moved the time. 
It's going to start later. It's, you don't have to come that early in the morning. You can sleep in. It'll be fine. We're going to make it more convenient. Is that what he said? Is it the transportation? Did he say, I'm going to send out chariots and pick everybody up so that you have a way there? We're going to have designated chariots for you to get you where you need to go. Is that what it says? We're going to get all the, 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 the Uber donkeys to show up there. Is that what it says? Is the problem the timing? Is the problem the transportation? Did he say, hey, hey, don't worry, it's free. Most people must have thought it was going to be expensive. Is the problem the cost? It's not the cost or the time or the transportation or what is the problem? The problem is, is that the people who were invited already have good things in their life, so they think, I don't really need that. That's the problem. Let me tell you who's not on, who, who didn't get the first invitation. No starving people got invited and said, nah, I'm not really in the mood for a banquet today. That's not how that went down. You know what it was? It's people who got it pretty good. And they're like, I mean, I got food. I, I got friends. I got things. I don't really feel up to it. I don't really feel like. So the second invitation comes out and tells us that by the way that it's changed, the way it's nuanced. Hey, everything's ready. It's going to be amazing. Trying to get them to see. See, the, the problem is not the form of the invitation. It's not the timing of the invitation. It's not the person offering the invitation. The problem is the heart of the invitee. That's the problem. The, the problem is internal to the invitee. The invitee is blind to the reality of their situation. They think they're okay. They think, I don't really need this. So they seized the servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murders, and burned up their city. You see, now that would have made perfect sense if it would have come immediately following the first invitation. But it didn't. It followed the word again. And it followed an even more compelling or, an even, or more information or however you want to put it. And so then you think to yourself, now, now um, understand the opposite nature of how we're hearing this. The original audience hears that the king flipped out and burned the city. And I mean, they're like, well, what took him so long? But that's not what anybody in this room thinks. In our culture, we think, that's so harsh. Man, it's just a banquet. Get over it. Like, wow, you're overreacting. Now, 
Think about this. And while God is not obligated to invite anyone, but he is obligated to respond to rebellion, to exercise his authority, and to protect his just name, isn't he? See, we're learning about the character of God here. We're learning about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And so, for example, in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. He, he's, he can't do that because he's by nature just. And so he's filled with goodness and filled with mercy and filled with patience and, and loving kindness to pour out on the forgiveness of sinners who repent. But he will not in any way clear the guilty ever. For any reason, in any circumstance or situation. No, every sin must be paid for. His books must be perfectly balanced and accounted for. Because that's the nature of who he is. And so if you think about this scenario, you think to yourself, so, so is this harsh? Is his response to those who reject the invitation, is it harsh? I think, it, I think the way you think about this tells a lot about you and how you understand the, the Bible. You see, I think what is crystal clear here is that his judgment is not at all a sign of his joyless and cold heart. His judgment is reserved for those who refuse to share in his joy and his heart. In other words, all he does is compel. All he does is he goes above and beyond the call of duty. See, here's above and beyond. Above and beyond is I'm the king. I don't have to do anything. But out of the goodness of my heart, I am going to prepare. I'm going to plan. I'm going to I'm going to cover the entire expense. I'm going to go to all the effort and all the and I'm going to do all the work. I'm going to do everything required beforehand. I'm going to print the invitations. I'm going to put your name on it. I'm going to make sure that somebody hand delivers it to you. Think about all the things the king did in advance to prepare for people who had zero claim, deserved in no way, shape, or form to be invited, and then invited them. And then in the midst of rejection, in the midst of, of just outright mocking, again, again, yes, you killed my servants. But again, I'm going to send out more. 
I'm going to send out more. And, and remember that the first invitation went out to who? To those who were already invited. Already invited. They'd already been invited. The first invitation goes out to say, hey, you know the thing that you've been invited to? Okay, it's ready. You know the thing that you've been, think about who the audience is. You know the thing you've been running around telling everybody that you're invited to and that you're going to go to? What have they been saying? Well, we're the, we're God's chosen people. Which in this context, in this story is saying, hey, we're, we're the people chosen to go to the banquet. They've been saying that for hundreds of years, generations. And now that the, the, the invitation has come and the banquet is ready, they change their minds. And what's, the, what's their problem? Is their problem with the king? No. Their problem's not with the king. The problem's not with the food. The problem's not with the time, the cost, the transportation. It's not with it. The problem is only with the one that is to be celebrated. That's their problem. The king, they're fine with. Banquets, they're fine with. Invitations, they love. A celebration centered around this son, they're out. That's the problem. And see, here's the principle. The gospel invitation is one that cannot be turned down without consequences. That's a very important thing to understand. It cannot be turned down without consequences. There's consequences to an invitation by a king. You see, all invitations aren't equal. If your neighbor, if this was a story about a man who was inviting his neighbors to come to a banquet, totally different. You can turn that down. Maybe it doesn't work in your schedule. Maybe you don't feel like it. Maybe you don't really like them. Maybe you're planning on moving anyway. Maybe it could be anything. But that's not what this is. This isn't an invitation by a neighbor. It's by the king. It's by the one who's in authority. So verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready for those who were invited were not worthy. So it's interesting. Notice, plan B is not, let's recalculate. Two rejections. Maybe we're not going to have a banquet. Maybe we cancel the event. Maybe we think of all the things that could have happened here. But instead, notice the king doesn't 
miss a beat. Everything's ready. In other words, you can see like the, the second invitation is rejected. You got all these people running around the palace. You know, you got all these cooks and chefs in there and guys, you know, turning the animals over the fire and all this. And there's this momentary pause where they all sort of stop a minute and go. And they're all looking at the king. Are, are we shutting this thing down? Am I going to... You want me to just freezer, put this in a Ziploc and put it in the freezer? What, what are we doing? And the king's like, doesn't miss a beat. We're rolling. So everything's ready. The first people that were invited, they're not worthy. So therefore, meaning they weren't worthy, Everything's ready. Therefore, there's no doubt about what's going to happen. So you're going to go out into the highways, on the main roads, as many as you find, and invite them to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all those that they found. Good and bad. Both. And the wedding hall was filled with guests huh the refusal of those originally invited had nothing to do with the the wedding not happening it didn't mean that the wedding doesn't happen it wasn't even a, a possibility there wasn't even a, a millisecond of hesitation no Here's what's going to happen. The king will honor his son. That's happening. No matter what. Number two, the father's plan will come to pass. That's happening. No matter what. Number three, there's going to be a wedding. That's happening no matter what. Number four, there's going to be a feast. Number five, the groom will be honored. He'll be honored. See, it's interesting. Now you see the, the laser focus of the king in this whole wedding feast to begin with. Is it, this is what's clear, is the feast about getting people to come? It can't be because he didn't hesitate. It's not about that. It's not about the people that come. Did you hear what I just said? Because you got to figure out where you are in this story. It's not about the people that come. It's not about the food. It's all about one thing and one thing only. And that one thing is unstoppable. So the refusal of those who rejected the king will turn, they will in turn honor him all the more, making the wedding to be even more amazing, more joy-filled, more famous, and more appreciated by those undeserving who do attend. 
How did that happen? What do I mean? Because had the first invitation been accepted, see, what's implied is that when he sends them out the third time to go get the good and the bad, the place is packed. So the implication is, is that had the first invitation been responded to, it wouldn't have been jam-packed. The second invitation wouldn't have been jam-packed. There would have been people there. Maybe it would have been well attended, but it wouldn't have been. But now what you have is, instead of, now think about this, instead of a group of people who were already invited. See, you were already invited. So it's sort of like a thing maybe where maybe there's something that you go to every year that you're invited to, and you get to go every year, and, you know, you look forward to it, and it's okay, but, you know, you go every year because you're special. And so you get to go every year. Now, somebody comes up to you and says, you get to go to that? Oh, man. Like, if I could just ever get to go to that. Just one time. See, like, here's a great example. Some of you, maybe, maybe you have season tickets to the Saints. That would be good. Like, I just don't think the Shuckers is going to work here. It's just not... You know what I'm saying? Like, that's okay, but you have season tickets. You, you got a box in the Superdome. So you, got, you go to all the home games. You get playoff tickets, you know, whenever that's again. But So you like it, but you know you can go. But then... I've been to Saints games. I've been to playoff games in the, in the Superdome. But I got a 14-year-old. He's dad. Do you think maybe one time we could, we could go see a Saints game? Now, the last time, full disclosure, the last time I went to a Saints game, when I left, I said, never again. But you shouldn't say things like that because it comes back to haunt you. And he's like, Dad, that would be my dream. Now you, with your season tickets in your box, you're there, you're cheering, you're excited, but you give those tickets to my 14-year-old, and there's going to be a whole nother level of energy in that box. There's going to be a whole nother level of anticipation about what's going on. The excitement level in that box is going to go way up, right? So what I'm trying to get you to see is, is that the first people that rejected were the season ticket holders. 
But what do you think happened when all the 14-year-olds had a dream about one day being able to go see a professional football game all get free tickets and invite into the Superdome? You think it's rowdy before. So now it's packed. And the level of excitement is way up here. You know why? Because these are people who never thought they'd have a chance. Because they're not Jewish. They've been on the outside. And all of a sudden, a helicopter flew over and started raining down saints tickets. And they're like, are you kidding me? This just happened. So you think the first banquet would have been a party. It's nothing like this. See, this thing just went through the roof. See, through the rejection of this one people and one nation, the invitation went out to all peoples from all nations. What, what was bad, see how the kingdom of God works? What looks like, looks like it's bad God spins for good. What looks like is a disaster turns out to be even more amazing. And notice that when, he, when they go out and invite all the people and it's packed, the people that come, both all whom they found both bad and good. I love listening to people get tangled up on that. I don't understand, Pastor. Now, there's bad people in heaven. And I go, I don't understand. Can you, you explain to me first? You go first. Let's have fun with this. You're more surprised there's bad people in heaven or you're more surprised there's good people in heaven? Oh, but hold on. Are there good people or bad people or any? Well, you, what is this even talking about? Good and bad refer to human standards. It has nothing to do with what they actually are. Because we know for sure that what they actually are is only can be one thing. This is the way they're seen by the world around them. So you've got, get this, you've got the hall now packed with people but you got all kinds of people. You got people that the world thinks are the scum, and you've also got people that the world thinks are good. You got people from every walk of life. You got people from every socioeconomic context. You got people on every level of education. You got people all over. They just went out into the main roads, the highways, the byways, and everyone 
they found, they invited, and the place was packed, filled with guests. In other words, there will be people deemed worthy by God that men in their evil judgments would not deem worthy. That's what's convicting about that statement. What troubles me is that that statement troubles some people. That's what troubles me. The problem that's being illuminated here by the Scripture is the simple fact that in every culture, wherever there's people, there's going to be some pecking order. There's going to be some, some way to affix value or worth or some standard of good or bad. That's the problem. God's going to invite all kinds of sinners to attend the feast in honor of his son. See, there's going to be a great variation of sinners. See, everyone is going to be a sinner. But they're going to have sinned in all sorts of different ways. Which means there's going to be people invited who sin in the same ways you sin. And so you won't be surprised when you see them. But there's also going to be sinners there who sin in the ways that you think are the most abhorrent. The most disgusting. The most depraved. What is the category of sin that you most are just most disgusted by? There's going to be some of them there. If you don't like it, you have a problem. King doesn't care what you think. He doesn't care. It's his banquet celebrating his son. He is footing the bill. He has done all the work, all the planning, all the you have done zero. Zero. Not one thing have you done. Not one thing. So who do you think you are to have an opinion about who got invited? We should think about that. And all of them Upon entrance, they're going to remove their earthly trappings. Whether their robes are rags, it's not going to matter. And they're going to put on a wedding garment furnished by the king. 
You see, the king is taking care of everything. You know, thank God this isn't. I'm just going to tell you, there's a bunch of us in the room that are in the club. It's a painful club. It's a club reserved for dads who have daughters who have been married. painful emotionally but it's also painful financially very painful but thank God I didn't have to buy all of y'all clothes to wear to the wedding dear God but this king everybody gets clothes at the door. Everybody. Every single person. So everyone's brokenness will be covered. Everyone's going to sit equally at the king's table. Everyone's going to be beautiful in the king's eyes. Now imagine this. So we went from, from man's standard of good and bad and the whole reality of how we judge one another and categorize things and people and situations and circumstances to this, the way the king operates is, is that when you enter into the banquet, no one looks out of place. There's no remnant of what category you used to see yourself in or be seen in. Everyone is, is, is completely equal in the banquet. I mean, this is an amazing thing. That's it. This would be, that's the moment to get the party blower and just go, go for it right there. Everybody's equal. Everyone's the same. Everyone is beautiful, but not just beautiful, but equally beautiful in the king's eyes because they're wearing the garment that the king chose. See, it's not like you like walk into the garment thing and you get to pick which one you want. The king chooses the garment. Everyone wears the king's choice. So it's, here's the thing. Again, it doesn't matter what you and I think about the garment. The king thinks it's beautiful. That's what matters. That's what's awesome is that we're all beautiful to the only one that matters. Now look at the gospel. Then what happens? Shocking again. The Bible says, just matter-of-factly, verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on the wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many have called, many are called and few are chosen. Do you know what is so mind-boggling about those verses right there? It's not mind-boggling that there's a man in there that doesn't have the garment on. It's not mind-boggling that he's bound hand and foot, taken away and cast into outer darkness. That's not mind-boggling. Here's what blows my mind. 
think about what the Bible says. The king, what does the king do when all the guests come in wearing the garment? They're fired up. In other words, when my 14-year-old gets a ticket to go to the Saints game, He's so excited to be there, and he's so pumped, and he can't wait. And it's, he's thinking it can't get better. And then he feels a tap on his shoulder, and he turns around, and Drew Brees says, Hey, bro, what's up? Can I hang out with you? king what is the king the king's not up on on a pedestal on a throne look at when the king came in to see the guests he wants to see them he wants to meet them he wants to eat with them he wants to fellowship with them he wants to be amongst them he wants, to, he wants to blend in with them. That is so crazy to me that, he, that the king would do that. Kings don't mingle with ordinary people, much less these people. These weren't even the chosen people or the invited people. But yet this king comes right out amongst them. That's mind-blowing statement number one. Mind-blowing statement number two is, when the guy who doesn't have the right garment on is seen. What should happen? Wouldn't it be the king comes and he's excited and he's walking around, hey, how are you? Looking good. Like that garment. That's your color. He's hugging everybody. We're just having a great time. Then he sees... You know, the guy without the garment. So wouldn't he just go, right? Get him out of here. Get him out. What is he doing? Get him out of here. But not this king. This king walks over to him. Like you enjoying that shrimp? Huh? You enjoying that? It's good, isn't it? That barbecue, it's on time, isn't it? And then the king says, hey, why don't you have your garment on? Hold on. If I'm sitting around, first of all, if that dude sits at my table, I'm like, I'm going over here. I ain't even going to sit by that cat. But if I'm around and I hear the king say, why don't you have your garment on? I'm like, what is happening right now? Does it matter why he doesn't have his garment on? Does it matter? Shouldn't he just immediately get put on the rotisserie? But the king asks, 
he extends an opportunity. Do you have a reason for not wearing the garment that we handed you at the door? I'm not saying that there could have possibly been an answer that would have worked. But I'm saying if there wasn't an answer that could have possibly worked, why would the question have been asked? Huh? I'm simply saying this. If that's not gracious and loving, the fact that he asked the question, and the man is speechless. Because he knows the reason why he's not wearing it. And he knows it's wrong, and that's why he doesn't want to say it. See, one guest did not accept the wedding clothes offered to everyone who attends the feast. One, one, one. And I wonder why that is. He believed that his own garment was good enough. He thought, I don't know, this, this just ain't mine. It didn't fit right. It doesn't look right. It doesn't. I mean, I put on, like, this is my favorite stuff I put on, so, I mean, this is my best suit or whatever it is, and I like the way this looks, and so I'd rather wear this. It's more comfortable to me. It's more my whatever it is. It's all about him. So he, he thinks it's good enough. And here's the thing we got to understand. How do we come into God's presence? How do you come into God's presence? You ever been in God's presence before? You hear God's voice before? You know, you know what his voice sounds like? You know what his presence feels like? You know what his loving kindness and his graciousness feel like? Because I don't know how you could be in a relationship with somebody and not be in their presence. Is that possible somehow? I don't think it is. So how do you enter into the presence of God? I'm going to tell you how. The same way I do and the same way everyone who enters into the presence of God enters. Because there's only one way to enter. And it's on his terms. You cannot come to the king your way. You cannot come to the king according to your plan, according to your purpose, according to your way, with your ideas, with your whatever it is you want to have. It won't work. There's only one way to come into the presence of the king, and that's on his terms. You see, in order to go into the banquet, see, think about all I thought about. I spent hours thinking about all the problems with the guy who wouldn't wear the robe. I thought about how 
the guy who wouldn't wear the robe, you know what his problem was? He didn't want to be the same as everyone else. He wanted to be different. He wanted to be special. He wanted to be noticeable. He wanted to, it was all about him. It was all about him. Whatever the reason was, I know this, it was about him. And the main thing about this parable is the whole thing is about the son. It's not about the guest. That's not who it is. See, this individual represents the self-righteous sinner who believes that there is such a thing as anyone worthy to enter the kingdom because of something they have done or haven't done. See, this is the person who has believed the lie of the good or bad back in verse 10. And they're caught up in that because they think that that's actually true. And they think that the human standards actually are the correct standard. And this parable is saying that is pointless. Pointless. We care a lot about what other people care about us, don't we? Why? What does God care about? What does God think about? See, we don't, we don't need a reformation of behavior or a better suit of clothes to make us appear godly. We require, require a transformation of the heart, an entirely new life. We got to do it God's way on God's terms, according to God's principles. Notice in Isaiah 61, there's about 10 different places in the Bible that say the same thing. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. See all these Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is just fulfilling them right before their very eyes. So where, where are you in this story? You're, you're here tonight. You're in the story. Everybody here is in the story. But where? Are you in the, the third group of people that received the invitation? To put on the robe and have a seat in the banquet hall? Well, what happens to all the people who receive the invitation? Let's say that we carried this parable on. We, we kept the story going. So there's a great celebration. And the, the son is honored. And all the people who never thought they'd get the chance to come get to come. And it's, it's an amazing, it's the greatest party you've ever been a part of. It's the most amazing experience you've ever had. And now it's winding to an end. And the king says, thank you. 
for coming. It's amazing. We got to share this time together. On your way out, take the robe off. Hand it to the attendant. Go back to your pitiful life. Is that what happens? No, no. What happens is, is that the king winds the party down and says, Hey, uh, let me have everyone's attention. This has been a great party. It's been an amazing party. Super glad that you're here. You all look amazing. You know, appreciate the fact that you're all equally amazingly beautiful to me. It's awesome. It's wonderful. But there's some more news. It's not just about this party. There's something else. All of you who are in attendance, I'm adopting as my children. You're now part of my family. So you don't, you're not ever going back home. You're staying here with me forever in the palace. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mingle with you every day for all eternity. We're going to be together. That's what's going to happen. So what happens then? So then all these people become what? Now are we sitting back, looking out the windows of the palace, wondering when God's going to have another banquet and and when he's sending out more invitations no no we're in we're adopted into the family so now where are we in the story so when the king is ready to invite people to a banquet who does he send out with the invitations you We're the servants in the story. We're the ones who take the invitations out and and then are rejected and even killed. That's who we are. We were once people who were trapped in our hopelessness and helplessness. But then we received the invitation. We were adopted into the family. Now we're his servants. Now we're the ones who invite people to come. And are we inviting people to come based on the probability of them saying yes? Are we, are, is our zeal to invite people propped up and based on the, a competition of how are we expecting great success at this? I mean, what are we doing? What do we know based on the story? It's going to be hard and thankless, isn't it? Out there. But it doesn't matter because here's the thing. In this scenario, is there anything the king could ask you to do that you wouldn't do gladly and joyfully? Because here's the thing. No matter what happens to you in this world, you know you're living in that palace forever. Nothing can ever change that. You've been adopted, grafted in. You're his son. You're his daughter. For all eternity, it doesn't matter. So you take the, if he says, take the invitation, go out there and invite people. Hey, no problem. No one's saying, I don't know. It's scary. I don't know. They might not say yes. I don't know. What if they reject me? I don't know. I don't want people to think bad of me. I don't know all the stinking reasons we come up to not invite people. Why would we not invite people? 
when we know what it's like to get invited to something we never thought we'd have a shot at, and it turned out to be the greatest thing you could ever imagine. That's who we are. We, me and you, we're the ones clothed in righteousness. And you know what? When we step out of that palace back into the world to invite people, they see us the same way they used to see us. Good and bad. See, they're still looking with the wrong eyes. They still see you the same way. They still see me the same way. That's okay. That's not who I am. That's not who you are. Our dad lives in the palace. The palace. Whatever happens here, I'm going home to the palace. You got that? I'm not living in fear of what calamity or catastrophe or trial or whatever. I'm going home to the palace. No matter what happens, that's my home. And it's never going to change. Because here's why. Everything that I've ever done wrong is covered by a robe of everything he's done right. That's the best news that anybody could ever hear. So you got a lot of things to think about and a lot of things to repent about, don't you? The way you see yourself the way you worry about the way other people see you, the way you let fear creep up on you. There's a difference between saying he's good and knowing how good he is. Father, thank you for your word. You're awesome. You're awesome. spend an eternity in that palace. Thank you, Jesus. We're honoring you because you, you gave everything so that we could come in. Thank you. What a blessing. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. I love you. Go get your kids.